This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, I have a special guest. His name is Josh Lamus, and he is the CISO. Chief Information Security Officer at a company called GitLab. Now, if you don't know what GitLab is, GitLab is from their website. They claim it is the most comprehensive and scalable enterprise DevOps, DevSecOps platform for software innovation. They have more than 30 million registered users and more than 50% of the Fortune 100 trust GitLab. Now, Josh, that's a mouthful, (laughs) but I want to hear directly from you, your marketing team. I think they did a great job, but as always, the tech leaders always say, you know, sometimes people say things, but as we know in any category, it usually requires a little more nuance and explanation. So if you could, Josh, can you explain for us what exactly is GitLab? Yeah. Thanks for the intro. GitLab is a DevSecOps platform that helps companies build and ship secure software. And we really do that through every phase of the software development lifecycle, from ideation, through building the software, all of the security checks in between, deploying your infrastructure, and then finally monitoring, and then going through that continuous improvement loop that happens as you build software and services for your companies. So give us an example. Let's walk our listeners through the lifecycle. So imagine I'm currently a software engineer, and we're going to spin up some, maybe some new services because we want to test something new. So we're going to spin up some new services. We might set, spin up our own environment. We're going to test some new application code in uh, you know, a, a sandbox, if, if you will, and we're going to eventually ship it to prod. And you mentioned the security of that. Give us an example. What's the life cycle? How did it used to work? And how does it work today with you? Yeah. So going back a little bit in my history, I used to work in product security, meaning I was working with developers my entire career, dealing with their sets of security issues. And it it happens all the way from the initial creation and, and when you collaborate. It's very easy if you're one developer, you build some software, it runs on your machine, works great, you're in control of everything. Well, when that scales up to thousands of of you know your coworkers and friends, all of those dynamics change. And so Uh, From the time that you start to write your first commits and share a project with other people, you're now taking in not only the software you write, but you're you're taking in the dependencies and libraries from third parties, open source software that becomes this amalgamation of your tech stack. Well, that's great. You sort of consolidate that in one place and you have your source code repository. Then that software has to build. And so you go through the process of, you know, whether it's continuous integration or build jobs, you have these build pipelines. Historically, that was done on things like Jenkins or some CI system. We consolidate that all together. So we're taking the software from your create stage or your development, then we're going to help you build it. As it builds, we can put these test phases along the way. So we can look at, you know, are your dependencies secure? Are there known CVEs in your dependencies? Are there uh, problems with your first party code? Did you or one of your friends introduce a security issue just by, you know, uh, inadvertently? So, you know, you, you may have introduced something, not used a framework, not used a secure library, not, you know, checked your validation. Um, we have telemetry in your pipeline to say, well, before that goes to production, here's some things I flagged, or here's some license issues I flagged, or here's some issues with your, your cloud security configuration. And then as that, ships to production, we can then retroactively go back and continuously scan that to make sure that 
the configuration you intended to ship is the one that's that's running in production. When that process happens, because that's the that's something that we discovered in my last software company as we added more layers of engineers, is people kept, I mean, it's common in software engineering, right? It's like where you reference and or use the code written by someone else. And so it kind of like, I don't want to say the mistake proliferates, but it kind of does. Like if it goes unchecked, it will very quickly proliferate into who knows where. And I remember we had this simple feature, which we needed to geo, they call it geo locking. And uh, I'll explain it. And back in the day, or it's still present on social media publishing, you could target content for your geography. So you can say, for example, if we were marketing in Korea, that this content is only for people that have an IP address in Korea. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to lock people in so that they couldn't geo-escape, meaning the Korean publishing team couldn't post something that then the world could see. And so we put in all these securities and checks in place, but or in code, and but like you said, like we actually opened vulnerabilities. Like it started becoming a problem because we were like passing parameters mm-hmm. around and people were like, wait a second, I could clearly see this guy's in Korea and I don't know if this is a hack or I don't know. And so every single time it was like, it was challenging. And especially because uh, social media as uh, the rise of GDPR came about, it's like, hey, you can't have identifiable information. So you're passing, I was like, oh man, this is like really, really, it's, it was complicated to solve, but the security gaps like you're talking about, I think our company, this was 2016, we would have paid who knows how much to know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like to make that easier because we really only could do it manually. We had to do it manually. Yeah. A common way of doing that is also just having some system that sits adjacent to your developers. So you can have your security tools, but there's no governance over it, right? If a developer says, yeah, this security scan ran, I don't have time to look at that you know, commit looks good to me. Um, Like that is, uh, that is still something that can be very common. And you could have a multitude of build pipelines at a large enough company. Maybe you have like 10 different build systems. All of them have different security configurations. One of the benefits of having a platform that all of your software is written on is that you can have a multitude of projects, a multitude of pipelines, but still have the same governance model and the same security model that checks for that. To your example, code reuse is another, you know, pattern that you can start to retro hunt for. So like, like, hey, we had this bad design pattern that happened over here. Can we look back across our entire code base and see if we're doing that anywhere else? Did some you know, enterprising developers say like, well, someone's already written that over here. I'll just copy that. <laughs> or I found this on Stack Overflow. <laughs> That's right. right? Like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways that code gets reused. That's exactly it. So through great yeah. intentions, it's just bad things kind of proliferated. For yourself and you know, your team, how do you think about approaching the solutions to these problems because you're effectively, I mean, I mean, let's get serious. The errors are limitless. You cannot predict what's new, new people will create errors or code loops or something like that, 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 that you'll have to then build the solution for in your systems. How do you, whether it's through leadership or how do you advise your team about engineering solutions for these problems? Because you are, you know, Effectively, companies are very much leaning on you to to check this for them. And and I know this for a fact is when people feel like they have a third party or something to lean on, they kind of over lean on them too. It's like it, they, they have they have a lot of, I would say, blind confidence, especially after a while. So there, there's a lot of trust. Like a, Your customers have a lot of trust in you to do your, do your thing. Yeah. So GitLab has both a self-hosted software as well as our SaaS platforms. So we have a couple of different deployment models 
And so we have to think about all of those different customer use cases. Some of those are as we build the features into the product so that if you're self-hosted, we're not managing it for you. It's entirely your responsibility to manage it, but we put the capabilities into the product to enable you to govern your software, to manage your security, and to manage the privacy of your software effectively all within your own control set. When we get into SaaS, we have more of a shared responsibility model, and that's where we can help with monitoring. That's where we can help with making sure that we do all the patching on behalf of our customers and so forth. And so those have very different uh, mechanics and and different um, approaches to how we co-manage security. We've learned a lot along the way and have built a lot of our own capabilities that we use in-house because we run GitLab and secure GitLab on GitLab, the platform. We use it ourselves. We're our number, you know, customer zero for all of our features in, in our products. And so if we found something useful and we think it will generalize well to the world, we will then open that up uh, to be used by our customers. We will open source it or we'll just build it as a product feature. And there's a lot of you know, examples that were things that started within my team that we just said, hey, that's a great feature or capability. Let's expose that to uh, the secure section of our product or the governance section of our product. Ways that we uh, kind of approach it is it's with a pretty simple mental model. We start with visibility. Like, can we see the problem? Uh, can we uh, correctly identify it? If yes, can then we set up kind of rules and design patterns around what good or bad looks like? Can we make some classification or can we discern what is good or bad here? And if yes, then we can start to put rules and governance around it. So it really starts with visibility and kind of ends with governance. And what we want to do is make sure that you can have choices, but all of those choices are secure choices, right? You often hear this called paved roads or golden paths or some other name to kind of describe something that is a repeatable design pattern that you want your teams to adopt. Can you give us examples of, you know, this, I guess this philosophy in play and how it's, what types of innovations is unlocked and maybe what type of like, uh, let's like disasters or crises it's, it's managed to stop or mitigate and prevent, uh, because it is, sounds like a thorough process. I like this idea. Like, Hey, these are the, these are, you have a, it's kind of like a custom yeah. home builder, right? You can have anything you want as long as one of these three things. Uh, <laughs> But it's I like it. I mean, in case because it gives some constraints. Because I do agree. I often think that completely open-ended platforms tend. I mean, they have to be. That's the most challenging thing to. Yeah, do. I mean, and your your point earlier, like that, the amount of optionality is almost limitless. So if you're going to give someone right. choices, it's not just your. You don't necessarily have an expertise in your the language of code you write and the infrastructure and the data layer and you know there's there are multiple skill sets. So if you just say, hey, you know, yeah. software engineer, you're going to have to build everything from standing up your infrastructure to deploying your code and then monitoring it and making sure it's secure. That's an awful lot to put on any one individual or team. And so uh, the way that we do that is try and build modularity into the tech platform to say, all right, you want to deploy this service. It looks like this is the general parameters. You need a, a data layer. Here's your options for data layers, like a shopping cart-like experience. Choose one of these. These all work, right? You, yeah. you, you need a, yeah. a cloud service. Okay, great. Um, you want to deploy this on this type of infrastructure, whether it's on GCP or AWS or Azure, you want to use some set of parameters for your compute. Great. We'll give you this 
you know, set of compute options. And then being a security person, we want to make sure that they're using some kind of auth layer. So one of the ways I've done that historically at other companies is to have some abstraction of the uh, authorization and authentication that front ends the, the API or the service mesh to say, this is how you deploy authorization and authentication on your service. Don't worry about writing it. Someone's already done that for you. When you were describing all that, I was just thinking to myself how when we I was more in the software game prior to doing podcasts, whenever we hired new technical leads, that is exactly what would inevitably happen is someone would always evaluate your existing code base and want to do things kind mm-hmm. of their way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Using the services they were more maybe familiar with. Um, so I can't tell you how many times we got recommended like we would say like well what would you implement in the first 90 days you know and that's like a interview mm-hmm. question people are like oh well i think we need a new you know ui uh, framework I'm like oh, no, I don't. <laughs> this is the one i used to my last job yeah 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 it's like hey uh we're not rewriting the yeah. whole front end because you are more familiar yeah, with something yeah. else like <laughs> that's a challenge when you think about this industry everyone it's like gen ai is inescapable um and when we talk with developers, there's there's this, of course, this desire to have, let's say, software assistance or code assistance and people helping you out, people running rudimentary checks through code. And one of the things we've been asking tech leaders is it kind of opens this fundamental problem of um, – how does how does anyone know the AI is right? You know what I mean? So like there, there's this new layer of, hey, if we're going to bring AI into the workforce and it is coming, I think that's undeniable. And people are probably going to use it to help them, assist them. And they're going to be probably running their favorite AI probably on uh, GitLab or something like that. What is your philosophy here? How does, I think this is the new big problem is how do we know AI is right? Like this is, I think, because, We've kind of crossed the chasm. People are just over trusting it. You know, let's let's assume nothing nefarious is happening, that it's not trying to take over the world. Okay, I'll check that box. But how do you know it's right? And how do you how are you hiring, planning to hire for ex- the expertise to be able to catch AI when it is uh when it is wrong? Yeah, it's such a big question right now. And I don't think that people realize how much AI they already interact with, apart from like, yeah. hey, I'm gonna go to chat GPT and interact with like a chat bot. But if you just look at most enterprises, they are probably running somewhere on the order of 700 to 1,000 models within a, their company Wow! just by interacting with APIs. Like Microsoft Office alone, I think, has 40 models that you interact with from spell check models to you know, uh, recommendation engines and all kinds of things that are they're really transparent to you because you're not running the model. You're just, you've installed some software and you're using the software. But on the back end, you have a lot of data flows going back and forth that are sending data all over the place. And we're not always going to be able to understand the outputs. I would say it really depends on if you are building software that is leveraging AI and large language models, or are you just a consumer of those things? So unless you're like your Amazons, your Googles, your massive tech companies, you're probably not building large language models in you know, a software shop of 100 people. What you're probably doing is you're interfacing with those models through APIs. And you're doing that in a, in a kind of request response. And historically, we always had software contracts that understood like, hey, if this is what I send, I should get something back that looks like this. Well, to your point, that paradigm has shifted. We don't always get the same kind of predictable responses. And we shouldn't because it's about, you know, these are transformer models. It's, it's uh, a statistical proximity to, to what you've said. 
And so when we think about that new paradigm and how do we sort of trust it, there are a bunch of different ways uh, to approach model explainability. And I will kind of go with the first side of that, which is intrinsic, like understanding what's actually happening within the model and being able to build tools and techniques to build model explainability. That is not um, viable unless you're actually building the model, you have access to the, the ML ops platform and the model weights, and you can understand the features. Furthermore, I don't think regulators are going to really understand uh, if you tell them like, well, based on a gradient descent approach, we've actually figured out our feature weighting is giving us the right outputs. That's going to mean absolutely nothing outside of the data science team. That's just going to, you know, <laughs> uh, me and, and sort of my nerd herd are going to be able to like grok what's going on there, but that's not going to be, you know, something that we can build policy around. We have to look at more extrinsic approaches or inferring what the models are doing and their outputs. And there's a bunch of different ways that companies are approaching that. They're, they're saying, well, we can send everything through proxies and then we can kind of build either small, simple machine learning models on the responses and figure out like, are these within our uh, boundaries of an expected response, right? That is a very kind of technical way of approaching it. But I think it really accords to your use case and how much we really know about what problem we're trying to solve. Are we trying to solve something with our software with AI, right? Are we, do we wanna have a better chat feature for our customer service? Well, if that's the case, like let's just make sure that there's not you know, like hate speech in these responses and let's build some like safety guardrails around you know, what is an acceptable set of responses. If this is a decision engine for like a, a loan application, we're gonna put a lot more scrutiny in terms of you know, how much should we trust that model response? With the way GitLab works and how it's basically integrating with all these services, uh, all these infrastructure players, uh, security models, language models, plus I'm sure your customers themselves are asking you to push some levels of innovation uh, on top of all of this. It's like you're like this big orchestrator, I think is the best way to describe it, right? That you're orchestrating all these different services, applications, uh, code bases. You're checking it all. You're checking it across environments. You're making sure that it is as easy as possible to consistently develop great quality code for whatever the customer is trying to do. So you have like supply chain stewardship. Like you're supposed to, like they, <laughs> you mentioned that shared responsibility. You're kind of in charge of like with everyone else, like making sure it's mm -hmm. all clean. But you also have your own platform innovation requirements and customers are probably pushing on you, leaning on you to say like, hey, I need GitLab to do this too. When you think about these, these requirements, how does your team, like what is a philosophical approach you have your team when it comes to like evaluating what to implement, what to maybe table? I think ignore is a bad term. Like let's, you know, let's do this today. Let's wait and see what that, what is your philosophy on? Because the, the innovation push and the security modernization that is asked of you, I'm sure is astronomically high. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we really look for um, high leverage approaches. Like what are the things that we can do with a high degree of certainty right now that get the outputs? And some of those might be really boring solutions. They not, might not be like super interesting or get people really excited, but are incredibly valuable. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah. Um, one is, you know, myself or other kind of leaders or engineering managers will come into an issue that has been talked about for like maybe a couple of months, right? So you start off with like, hey, I want to 
develop this feature. The development team finds a whole bunch of different problems, blockers. It starts as an issue, becomes this huge epic of, of things that they need to build. And I look at it and it's just this wall of text. I'm like, what? What's going on here, right? Um, and so we built AI to or use AI to say summarize this issue, right? Like take this three months of stuff and give me like a paragraph of what's going on here, so I can you know maybe be helpful. Um, and that feature I use all the time in GitLab. I just basically go in and say like summarize what the hell's going on here. I need to figure it out, and then I go, oh well, this is where it started. This is where it ended. These are the blockers. Uh, and I can go to a meeting and give an informed opinion and help them get through whatever technical blockers they have to release that feature or solve that problem. And so that is uh, an incredibly useful feature. Another one is the security industry has been really successful at making uh, a lot of things seem like black magic when it's really not. And so we have developed a feature about explaining vulnerabilities. So it's like we've detected a vulnerability in the pipeline. We can recommend a fix and explain the vulnerability of what actually happened. So, oh, you're not type checking this input in this service, right? And I'm like, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, we can give a quick summary to the developer to not only understand what the issue is, but then recommend a fix on how to submit another commit to take away that vulnerability so it ships to production and they're not blocked. So for us, that's a high leverage activity because it's saying, let's not require someone from the security team to go work with you. We're letting the developer <laughs> self-serve, automate, and they're working on the code not two weeks later when the security team goes, hey, developer, why did you, you know, push this commit? It has an issue in it, or you did push this issue. Here's how to solve it. They're doing it in the moment while it's fresh, um, you know, before they go grab that cup of coffee or whatever they want to do after after they push that that code. So um, that's how we're we're seeing that, and that's our mental model for adopting AI and adopting capabilities. Let's do useful things that are high leverage and provide a lot of benefit to the greatest number of people. Yeah, because at first when I was thinking to myself, I was like, what's the worst case scenario if I'm working on Josh's team? And I'm thinking you come into work and you see like a giant punch list of tickets of things that you have to knock out. And then the way you described it, now I feel a little bit better. It sounds like it's a more thoughtful approach. Like, hey, what should we attack today? Uh, what's going to be, like you said, the most high levered thing? Because I can't imagine what the your inbox looks like yeah. <laughs> or uh, your ticket request system. Yeah. I don't know, your feature, yeah. whatever you're using to collect this feedback, I'm sure, um, I'm sure people have opinions. That's the best people, way to describe people it. People have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> and so then if we can bring down the, the like transactional load and the operational load, everyone benefits. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Give us an idea of what, like, what, like a big project looks like to you, because the re the reason why I think you're in a unique spot is because for some people, they have internal stakeholders, surely. Right when they develop products, let's say into like a C the C two might have internal stakeholders. Some people might have customer stakeholders, but you have that you have customer, which there's infinity, uh, not infinity, but like they could be do infinite. They could be doing infinite things. That's that. I think that's true. Uh, you have your internal teams of which they have opinions on how this thing should work, and then like you said, you have platform support. Like you have also. <laughs> Because I'm sure someone's before said to you, why can't we just do this, Josh? And like, well, that's not permissible by the cloud. Or why can't we do this? Well, that's not how the data needs to flow to the, you know, the analytics model that you're using. Whatever the, whatever the answer is, you mentioned how you evaluate what to say yes to. 
But how do you, I guess, break the news? You're not going to build what someone else is asking for. Yeah. So we never want to be the team of no, which is, you know, security teams and and we're not looking to be gates. And so going back to what I was saying about visibility, we want to basically have all the data to make well-informed decisions. And we can only make decisions about things that we have data on, right? There's, there's probably a whole universe of things. And I mentioned we have self-hosted customers. I don't have any data on what there's going on in their projects, right? Just what they send in a feature request. (laughs) So I can't really help them unless they come to me for help or come to the our teams for help. Um, what I can do is where I, I have all of that data from all of the build jobs that everyone uh, in the open source community and everyone building on GitLab. And from there, we can really look at how do we approach this problem space in a way that, that makes sense for this particular audience. And so it's it's not no, it's yes, but like, yes, I see where you're yeah. going. <laughs> Let me help you get there. Here are the like four or five things these are our technical limitations or procedural limitations or regulatory limitations that prevent us from doing exactly what you said, but I get your intent. And let me work with your intent and see if this solution that we're going to co-build together makes sense. And then everyone's a stakeholder. We have the data, we've presented it, we've looked at it objectively together, and we're going to build it. And we know that it'll scale or generalize. And if we don't, then like, let's do a prototype. Like, Let's bake off three or four of these ideas and see what will work. And if we've come up with a, a viable approach that, that scales based on the data we have at that point, let's go forward. Um, but we want to just continually iterate on those ideas. Yeah. So I think you're, you hit the nail on the head there is uh, I think directionally, every company's kind of going in the same direction. It's just like, yeah. how, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the how uh, kind of what we talked about before. I think every year in technology, people will say this is the most transformative year in technology. But I believe that, uh, and I'm going to, you know, I myself am 44 years old. I've seen now, like, I would think there's a couple, we've lived through a couple of massive technological shifts, right? I will say the first was the internet. The next was mobile. AI might be the third, right? Like, this is like a huge tectonic shift. You're seeing impacts in the tech industry more so than the others. What do you see, and this is more of a general broad question, whether it's at GitLab or anywhere, what do you see for your industry right now? Because we've had leaders come on here and talk about the fact that you cannot rely on AI solving even the most rudimentary problems. And they said, because if you don't have in-house talent that can identify and spot and do these things without AI, then how will you ever do advanced modeling, advanced technologies, advanced techniques, because they don't have that base layer foundation. We had some VCs even talk about it too. They're like, you can, we, companies cannot allow AI to take away their, let's say they're like a, their frontline or entry-level positions because so much of coding knowledge is through repetition and experiences. Like if you take that layer away, it's hard to say that they become like a, you know, if, if, if 10 is an exceptional engineer and one's a beginner, if you skip from one to three, you'll never make fives. And if you don't have fives, you'll never make tens. And like this concept that we're in this, we're in this really interesting phase. I'd love to hear your philosophies on what do you think is happening in the industry for your, for your field? And what do you hope you're going to do about it if you think there's any problems? <laughs> yeah. I think that that's a, that's a big compound question and it, it, it's a really interesting yeah. one. 
It's the kind of questions yeah. I like to ask. <laughs> I, I think that people have, you know, there, there's there's sort of two schools of thought, right? Which is, there, you know, one end of the spectrum, you have people saying AI is going to like take away all the jobs and, you know, there's going to be this robot future. And then there's other people that are saying like AI is just a feature. And I think that they're both wrong, yeah. right? And here's why. What I've been seeing in, in software development specifically is that we went in with a hypothesis of, Generative AI and code generation is going to help junior developers and they're going to write software faster because they will have these AI assistants. And I do think that we have an AI teaming future where it's going to be human and AI together. But in our own data, what we're seeing is it's not the junior developers who are benefiting. It's the senior developers. It's the ones who already know Mm. what they want to do and they're able to ask informed questions or build prompts that give them the right output faster. So we're making the good people better. We're not making the people who are coming into the industry at the bottom more productive. We're seeing some benefit there, but the greatest benefit are on the more senior people who already have the fundamentals in place, who know how to ask the right questions, who know if like, hey, that's not exactly what I was asking for when they get something back from AI and can use their sort of, you know, human cognition to say like, nah, close, but not exactly. And then iterate on that to get something better. They are getting much, much faster. And so I I am much more hopeful for kind of the middle to the top end of the skill spectrum, improving and getting more efficient. But I do think that AI is much more, and to your point about, we've seen some of these evolutions. I think this is more on the order of cloud computing and mobile computing and these these massive watershed moments that we have had in tech over our lifetimes um, and not the you know the blockchain or the you know the other sort of uh, lesser contributions if you will to to technology that we've seen over that same period of time I'm curious about it too I'm curious about how it plays out in the fact that like for example I already in just my operational work, have an AI assistant, right? So for example, if someone gives me something formatted incorrectly that I need like a inventory list table because I want to get a, a, like an equipment loan, I will ask my AI bot to like put mm-hmm. it in a table. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like why would I right. put it in a table? That's that's annoying. But to your, you know, and this is, sounds so elementary, but that's hours of work. And I know that the RPA industry has helped people that do like repetitive task work and it's, you know, a little AI, a little RPA. Now it's being done faster. I am quite excited. I, I think I lean more towards you in regards to like, I think there's going to be a huge shift like temporarily, like short-term shift where maybe there is uh, like, we're in that short-term shift right now where there's a lot of fear mongering, I think that's happening, but it won't be long before people realize how much more they can do with just a little assistance. <clears throat> like you just talked about, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I see it. I, I see that being way more probable than being replaced. I agree. And there's on the security side, there's been a lot uh, made of the offensive capabilities like, oh, you know, we'll have attackers that are able to build more elegant exploits. Maybe, right? I can go to an AI bot and if I am able to ask questions correctly, like maybe I get my exploit written more quickly and maybe it's technically better. But we also have the counterbalance of how much faster and the time value that we can get on the defensive side as well. We can use AI to aggregate and analyze log data in a way that you know would be hours and hours of kind of human work to pull these things together. And I, I think that it's really just this, it will become self-leveling over time, right? When people start to see these benefits and they can 
take advantage of both the speed as well as the kind of insights that you can get from something that's really good at doing, you know, matrix multiplication and, and transformer models. <laughs> For yourself, do you do you lean on a little assistance as well? Like, have you seen some? Because, like, I I'm telling you right now, I play with it all the time, and uh, it's what I'm becoming more impressed by is. AI's ability to filter imperfect information. So like I fed it once. So for example, I asked for, um, I work with a company, we have like all types of equipment. So I asked the different locations to send me a list of their equipment. Even though I provided a table for them to fill out, they didn't really do that. They kind of just emailed Mm -hmm. me stuff, which, you know, in, in the old days, I would ask everyone to go back, redo it and stuff like that. So I just took this information in, you know, disorganized information and had it, uh, you know, had an AI bot try to structure it for me. And it did a pretty darn good job. Like, including, I said, hey, you know, create a table with hyperlinks embedded to like where these products are. And I was like, dang, that took me, that saved me hours. I didn't know for yourself, like, because I'm sure your prompts are just next level. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you using? Are you using uh, AI, any assistance or automations that are helping you out? All the time. Like almost every day I use some form of AI. I use the example of GitLab where I'm like, summarize this issue for me. I don't know. I have any idea what's going on here. Yeah. I haven't been paying attention. Like, tell me what's going on here. And that's like, you know, saving me hours worth of time. Um, others in, in refactoring code. So sometimes we'll, I'll have something that either I wrote or the team wrote or that I want to reconstitute that's been kind of a dead project. And it's written, say, like in, you know, some older version of a language. This is really common with Python. Like, oh, this is in Python 2, and there's no Python 3 version of this. Refactor all of this code in Python 3. That would be, you know, engineering weeks, months, years, and that can be minutes, right? It can be very, very rapid yeah. to, to adopt some capabilities. And similarly, on the, on the security side, we use it all the time. We use it in detection and response activities. We use it to... Uh, analyze log data. We use it to get you know, even mundane tasks. We're very big on using it in kind of all phases of the software development lifecycle, up to and including like help me understand this vulnerability, right? Help me um, help me rewrite this code in a secure way. Give me because if you just ask OpenAI write me a function that does Y, it will give you a function, and absolutely it will do that function, but it will probably not do any. Security checking, it probably won't have any error checking. It will just silently fail. But if you give it a more elaborate prompt, you'll get something smarter. So it's it's all about you know prompt engineering and how we think through these problems and can we get more effective. I'm I'm getting better at asking questions because of AI. Yeah. How about this skill as it translates and relates to recruiting and hiring the next generation of talent. Uh, and the next generation doesn't have to be young, just maybe it could be the next generation for you, yeah. right? <laughs> Meaning you work in a high demand field. Uh, we know that the people that you attempt to recruit and retain are some of the most talented people in the world, and they also are coveted by other companies. And so what? how do you go about uh, vetting and attracting some of these people to, to join you? We're really looking at how they think in their mental models. Rather than just looking for their hard skills, we're saying, how do you ask questions? How do you frame problems? You know, whether it's you're asking questions of a human or whether you're asking questions of a large language model, can you frame this in a way that gets you to the right outcome? Because I could teach technical skills to almost anyone, but I can't teach people how to think through problems, how to be thorough, how to think through not only like 
what is the immediate problem in front of them, but what are some of the externalities downstream of that problem? And so when we're recruiting, I'm not I'm asking a lot of questions that have almost nothing to do with security at times. It could be, you know, <laughs> talk me through like here's the the you know the context. You are gonna go, you know, skiing and here is, you know, you're at a set of trails. Here are what the signs say. Which decision do you make and why? What questions do you need to understand to figure out your safest path down the mountain? Like that would be the kind of question that I would start to think through someone's mental model. There you go. Listen, man, I think that that is exactly the way you got to do it. I One of the tips I have for, and I've been using it for a long time, is I ask people to show me their home screen on their phone because their home screen, because they can preemptively prepare. Like if you ask them what's your favorite book or something you read, they can like kind of prepare their answer, but the home screen of their phone typically will reveal what they do <laughs> most frequently. Yeah. And so I always joke that I, I expect to see what I do. I do. Like if you're not reading a lot, I think it's yeah. odd. Whether you're a news reader or a, a actual fictional reader, it doesn't matter. Like I think a non-reader is it's a bad sign. I think that's just if you're not taking in information <laughs> in the information age, what are you doing really? Yeah, yeah, I think it's very challenging. Exactly. But you also hit on something I also firmly believe in. And it sounds like you are a lover of the outdoors. I can see a pair of skis in your back. We talked before the show yeah. started that you're also, you grew up in California. So it sounds like you, you're familiar with the beach, surf, ski. So I got to ask, you know, one of the things we also want to do is get to know you personally. Josh, what is your favorite outdoor activity? Oh, so I live in the Pacific Northwest now. I'm a California native. So I grew up uh, surfing a lot, um, skiing in, in Tahoe. Uh, but now I'm in the Pacific Northwest and it's primarily skiing in the uh, in the winter and mountain biking the rest of the nine months or eight months that we can't uh, ski or, or that skiing's not quite as good. So those are the two things we do here quite frequently. But yeah, I was basically born on skis. So uh, that's that's how I spend the winter. How good would you say you are as a skier? I think that that's a, a very dangerous and loaded question. I am I'm a, I'm a very proficient <laughs> skier. Let me put it that way. Um, there you I have, go. I have uh, let's see, four sets of skis. So, Have you ever gone hella skiing? I've done a lot of cat skiing. I avoid the helicopters for the, for the flying. And uh, I do a lot of backcountry, <laughs> but I've skied all over the world. I've skied in Japan. I've skied in the U.S. I've skied in uh, Canada a lot. So there's... Uh, there's a lot of travel skiing involved as well. Okay, then that can I can gather exactly how good you are based on, or at least a minimum floor, <laughs> right? Because the yeah. <laughs> that that's pretty exceptional. You're going around the world skiing. For those that might have heard Josh talk about some of the places he's been, uh, fun factoid: Japan is actually this. I forget which mountain range it is, but it is the snowiest place on Earth. On Earth. I'm assuming that's where you went. Yeah, yeah, we skied in the Seco, and uh, for you know people who are into skiing. It is a destination that should be on your list. It has some of the deepest, lightest powder in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so when I go surfing, I always have thoughts when there's lulls. Yeah. You know, of course, like you're paddled out, you're in a tropical place, you look back, I don't see a human in sight. All I see is jungle. My mind will think about many things. I don't control where it thinks. Sometimes it thinks about work, sometimes it doesn't. For yourself, do you find yourself coming up with great ideas when you're, whether it's, I, you know, like up a chairlift, do you, do you start, does your mind start to wander or do you tend to, when you're doing these outdoor activities, use it as more like a, I'm cleansing of the mind. Yeah. I, I use it to get into flow state. And so great ideas come on the drive home or after the event, like I sit down for lunch or something. And that's when 
because I've been in that flow state for some extended period of time, my mind's had a break from, from churning on the problems, but it, it gives that necessary space for you to have, you know, fresh perspective on something that maybe I was thinking about for weeks before that. Um, and so I find, find it very useful that way. There you go, Josh, man, I agree with you 100%. I feel like people who have, or have to use their brain and a high level brain function to figure out hard problems. I think having a physical hobby, something physically hard is important because I agree that I think that it like, I call it cleansing. I think it gets rid of like weird thought or bad thoughts, or maybe like you said, you for, it just opens your mind in a different way. Yeah, for sure. Josh, thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. It was awesome hearing about your personal life and how your love of skiing and also how you guys are building GitLab. I called it the building tool for the builders. Uh, it is it's always interesting to hear the perspective of what you specifically in this, anyone in this category is going through, because like we talked about before, you're handling your customers, you're handling internal stakeholders, you're handling all the platforms. I don't know, you're handling everything. And so it was awesome hearing how you kind of work and recruit to do this. Albert, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Listen, for those of you listening, if you want to check out GitLab, it is spelled G-I-T-L-A-B. Give it a shout. And what is the animal that is the logo? It is a tanuki, a raccoon dog. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to look up what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Mm-hmm.